Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 278 of Keeping Up with the King as we make our way through the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew 28, almost to the end of the book, and an interesting and perhaps timely section to, to read about today, as today is Election Day, uh, the day I'm recording this at least. Um, so I guess if you're listening to this the day I release it, it'll be the day after Election Day. So anyway... Um, just some timely things here. So let me read this. This is uh, following Jesus' death and resurrection. And there is an earthquake. An angel rolls away the stone. And uh, let's, let's read about what happens next. It says in verse 11, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Now, remember that... Um, when the angel came, the guards, it says, shook uh, for fear of him and became like dead men. And so now they are going back to the chief priests and reporting what happened. That's verse 11. Verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. All right, so a few different things I wanted to, to mention. First of all, uh, there is some debate among some about who these guards are. Uh, are they Roman soldiers or are they uh, Jewish temple guards? There are those who say, well, it's Jewish temple guards because uh, Pilate says to the um says to the Jews when they want to make the the uh, the grave secure, when they want to make the, the tomb secure, uh, he says, you know, you have a guard, make it as secure as you can. Others will say, no, this is the, this is Roman guards that were given to them by Pilate, and that he says, you have a guard, meaning here you go, you take these guys. And I think when we read it, though, we need to read it and kind of read it in light of those two options and see which maybe uh, is maybe the more um, rational or uh, understandable argument, which which fits best. So let's keep those in mind. Let's read again what happens. It says um, that, you know, they came and made the report. And when they when the elders and chief priests consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. All right, so the question here is this. Are these the Jewish temple guards or are these Roman soldiers? Now, if they're Jewish temple guards, there's a there's two things I think are problematic. Number one, that they're given a large sum of money to uh, to lie. Um, though that's not necessarily a, a, uh, a deal breaker, but it definitely would be a large sum of money necessary if they were Roman guards, because, uh, if you research this, you research this in, in secular history, the Roman, Roman, uh, soldiers, um, should they fall asleep while on guard duty could be beaten to death. That was the punishment basically was was being beat to death. There was a number of other things you could be beat to death if you're a Roman soldier. An interesting little list, uh, if you ever want to look that one up. But uh, that would require them a large sum of money. The second part of it 
I think that's important is that they say, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. Now, if these are Jewish guards, Jewish temple guards, and the word got to the governor's ears, what difference would that make? They don't work for him. Does Pontius Pilate have any skin in the game? Does he really care if the temple is secure, if the uh, rather if the tomb is secure? I mean, he tells the the Jewish religious leaders, "You got here's your, here's your guard. You know, you've got to you've got a guard. Go do it." So, it it seems to, to me, at least, to make much less sense to say that these are are uh, the Jewish temple guards. It just it just seems to be uh, less likely. It seems to fit the narrative better to say these are Roman guards who have to be paid off with a large sum of money because should the word get back to the to the uh, Roman governor they are going to be maybe beaten to death so this is it's got to be worth their while secondly they're also the religious leaders tell them if if this comes to the governor's ears we will appease him and make you secure in other words hey we'll pay him off too if we need to we'll, we'll do what we have to do and so then they took money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So the thing that's commonly reported is that the disciples came and stole the, um, the body while the soldiers slept. But again, this, this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because why would the Roman soldiers sleep? Um, the only reason they would say that they slept was because they got paid a lot. Otherwise, you know, hey, if I fall asleep on guard duty, I'm going to be, I'm not just going to be like, you know, put to death. I'm going to be beaten to death, like clubbed to death. So that would be a very bad deal. So the, the likeliness of the Roman soldiers, plural, right? Soldiers, plural, all falling asleep. A bunch of them, um, or two or more at least, um, all falling asleep at the same night so that the disciples could steal the body. The one night that, that the soldiers decided to slack off and put their lives at jeopardy because they're sleepy would be that, that particular night. It's, it's just unlikely. So anyway, I mentioned at the beginning, I felt like this was very timely in, in light of our political climate, in light of uh, all the things that have happened in the last few years with, uh, with COVID and vaccines and, uh, mask mandates, and all these things. It's been very fascinating now as we are further along uh, and studies are coming out when we're seeing these studies that are showing that our children that were public schooled and were kept out of school for all these long periods of time have been greatly affected in negative ways by this. And that's like the uh, the Pfizer president admitting that the vaccines never were going to stop the spread of the disease, um, that they would maybe perhaps decrease the severity, but they're not going to keep you from spreading it. And so a lot of these things are coming out now that are, are fairly contrary to the narrative at the time. But if you're not paying attention, you could easily miss miss these because they're not greatly reported on. Because the people who are reporting the news have skin in the game. And I don't want to get too political, but I think what we're seeing is a very similar thing to what's going on with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. When they're wrong, rather than saying, 
oh man, we blew it. <laughs> we we are really we were really wrong. We need to do what we can to to rectify the situation and admit our wrongs. It, it it would come at a great cost, right? Because if you were wrong now, what what else were you wrong about? How many other things were you wrong about? And, and to me, this is one of those tragic things that we're seeing around on both sides of the political aisle, where people are refusing to admit their their side's failings. I was listening to the radio today, and there was a, a conversation between the, the two guys that were friends that were uh, on opposite ends of the political aisle. And it was just really fascinating to listen to how they made excuses for the, uh, they were talking about election denying, denying the results of elections and how they were making excuses for their side. You know, uh, one of them said, well, you're just giving me reasons, you know, and I thought, well, this is really fascinating because rather than ever saying my side was wrong, they're so invested they're so invested that they have to just make excuses. And I think this is a dangerous thing for us. When we become so invested in, so, in something that we have proclaimed that we refuse to examine it. And some people are this way, honestly. Some people are this way with theological ideas. They're so invested that they refuse to examine it. I know people that are so invested in... Um, the, for example, the Passion Translation of the Bible, they're so invested in it because it's endorsed by religious leaders that they believe in. Um, it's endorsed by people in the movement that they are part of. It's, in, it's um, commonly used in their church. And yet, even though not just some Bible scholars, but like the scholars of scholars, the experts in uh in original languages, the experts in certain books of the Bible have come forward to say, like, no, this is just wrong. Not only is the translation wrong, the guy who translated it says things that are just inaccurate. He talks about uh, translating things from the from the Aramaic edition of the Bible. And one of the things that over and over these scholars will say is, what Aramaic editions of the Bible? What's he talking about? There are no ancient Aramaic editions of the Bible. And so they have to, they, they start assuming that he's talking about other things. But uh, anyway, all that to say, there's so much evidence. There's so much, uh, there's, there's so much scho scholarly reporting on the falseness of the claims of the translator and the inaccuracy of the translation. And yet there are those people who are so invested and have used it for so long that they won't even look at the evidence. They don't want to even examine what they have been promoting. And I don't know about you, but I've been wrong before. I've been wrong a lot before. And I believe that it would be foolish to get in a spot where I would say, I cannot be wrong. I cannot be wrong. Because I've been wrong before. Now, there's some things I am very confident in. There's some things I might say, like, you know what? I don't think I can be wrong about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sins. I don't think I could be wrong about the Bible being the inspired word of God. 
But I'll tell you this, I could definitely be wrong about a lot of theological um, ideas that I have either come up with on my own or been taught by somebody else or found in a book. And we need to continually examine those things. Heaven forbid we get in the point where we close our ears or we even try to destroy those people who come up against us to say something contrary to what we say. It's very common, unfortunately, within within the church for people to start calling people that have different theological viewpoints, you know, demonically influenced, you know, and, and you know, to, to uh, say, oh, that person speaks in tongues and tongues are, you know, of the devil, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, you know, and, and to me, that's, it's one of those things where, again, we, we need to have that humility. We need to have that humility to say, you know, I've been wrong before. I could be wrong again. I need to listen. I need to, I need to be, remain soft to the possibility that I could have been deceived in the past, that maybe something I'm holding to, I've not really checked or tested with the totality of scripture. Heaven forbid we ever become like these Pharisees and religious leaders who are so invested in Jesus not being the son of God, that when he rises from the dead, when an angel opens up the tomb, that they will be so invested that they will invest their money into spreading lies. They'll invest their money into spreading lies rather than accepting the truth. It's an amazing thing. You know, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we are saved, it is the power of God. God bless you. Talk to you next time.